Hey, do you teach yoga? Have you ever trained to lead yoga classes to be a yoga therapist? Have you ever owned a yoga studio? Maybe even just wondered what it was like for the women and men up there in front of the room on their mats, leading you through endless Surya Namaskars, down dogs, and pranayamas galore? Well, these are their stories and mine. I'm Rebecca Sebastian, a 20-year yoga teacher, 10-year yoga therapist, yoga studio owner, and co-founder of a yoga-focused nonprofit. I've done a lot in the yoga world over the last 20 years, pretty much everything except had a water cooler. You know, a place to share stories, talk about struggles, successes, and find other people who do the same thing that I do. Welcome to Working in Yoga, a podcast and substitute water cooler for yoga folks to connect and build community, to share our unique profession, our challenges, and our journeys with the world. Welcome to Working in Yoga. This week, we are starting a new fall series that I'm calling Evolving Conversations. I personally really love diving into our hard conversations with experts who are sharing their journeys and ideas with all of us. I think it makes us better as a whole. I want to take some of our most difficult topics like cultural appropriation, trauma, money, business, and teaching methodology, and then dig deeper to see how we can push these conversations forward in a way that benefits us all. Today is one of those conversations. Sherry Dostal-Riva is a true expert on the subject of touch and consent, and she and I move really quickly past the idea of glorified drink coasters, aka flip chips, into the true meaning of consent to if and how we can add touch to our profession. Sherry talks about the benefits of touch, which are important for us to remember, and I'm talking to myself as much as you all here, but also adds in what context touch is appropriate or not. I know you're going to want to listen. Before we get into this conversation, though, please remember to go ahead and hit the follow or subscribe button wherever you're listening to this podcast. I love it. The algorithm loves it, and it is by far the best way to support my work here on this podcast. If you're curious about all the things that I'm talking about in the yoga space, you need to go ahead and get on my newsletter right away. I'm typically emailing you only once a week unless I have a big program launch and I tell you about the other things that you can read, listen to, or take note of in this wild and wonderful industry of ours. The link to my newsletter is in the show notes. And thank you, as always, to Sunlight Streams, the online self-care platform This week on the blog, we are talking about the difference between discomfort and suffering and how knowing the difference contributes to our own self-care. Grab the blog at www.thesunlitexperience.com backslash blog. Now, here is my conversation with Sherry Dostal-Riva. Welcome, friends, to Working in Yoga. Okay, so this week, I have a repeat guest, Sherry Dostal-Riva, and Sherry is here discussing all things consent with me because there's nobody better to do it than Sherry. So Sherry, will you tell everybody who you are and what you do? (laughs) What an intro. Thank you, Miss Rebecca. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So who am I? I am a woman. I am a mother. I'm a certified yoga therapist. I'm an author of a book that came out last year, Pelvic Yoga Therapy for the Whole Woman, a Professional Guide. And 
Yeah, there's a lot of intersections between pelvic floor health, sexual health, and embodied consent, informed consent. Um, and that that starts as, or maybe the foundational thing that will change the yoga landscape or the, the harm landscape, as we were talking yesterday, is that instinctual embodied knowing and the capacity to respond in real time, according to what your body is telling you. Um, so we'll, we'll get into that, <laughs> of course, <laughs> while we talk today. But um, yeah, so I, I was co-director and lead faculty of a yoga therapy training program for about seven years um, and had been mentoring teachers, uh, yoga, Pilates, fitness, movement teachers um, of different sorts for many years before that. Um, recently departed from that role, but this is one of my bandwagons. <laughs> this is one of my mission <laughs> to continue um, alongside the pelvic floor health is shifting our broader human societal collective understanding of embodiment and consent, regulation and relationship, all of the above. Um, and this particular topic, I have a course that I've taught. I counted while I was eating lunch today <laughs> that I've taught it around <laughs> nine times in different trainings and capacities. Um, and in the past, it's been a 10 or 12 hour program specifically yeah. for teachers having these conversations about where have we gotten it wrong? What are we doing currently? And what are the advantages and disadvantages of those practices? Um, what's your personal relationship to proximity and touch? How does that then play out in a yoga studio or, or yoga classroom or private session? Um, and there's, it's a ripe conversation. And I, I feel like the last several years that we're finally feeling more collective readiness to actually have the conversations. Um, so my, my bandwagon is not to say that everyone needs touch, therefore we, we touch everyone, right? Like that's a huge red flag for me when I run my training, when I have teachers say, oh, well, our studio policy is to touch everyone that comes through the door. Or my personal goal as a teacher is to make sure I have a touch point with every student, every class. Um, that again is a red flag and we'll talk through why. <laughs> so my bandwagon isn't like one side of the spectrum that touch is great. We need it. So let's all do it. Or there's been such harm, such abuse. So it's completely hands off now. And we've seen that pendulum swing in recent years, you know, through everything from the pandemic, the Me Too movement, um, different allegations and lawsuits and um, accusations that have been brought forward with senior teachers and many different lineages, not just yoga, um, but, you know, spiritual communities, Buddhist communities, yeah. all, all sorts, um, religious institutions, you know, like this, this is pervasive in our culture. And so my hope, um, which crystallized for me very much. So at the beginning of the pandemic, like March, 2020, <clears throat> I was sitting um, Megs was about six months old, sitting in the rocking chair, nursing her, you know, like totally touched out new mom, <laughs> right? <laughs> yes. um, but long time yoga and movement lover and teacher. Um, and I remember telling my husband, like, holy shit, like the world 
is screeching to a halt. Like there's no toilet paper in Orange County. Flights are grounded around the world. Like we've never seen anything like this happen in our lifetime. And how on earth are we going to find our way back to each other after this? And I think we're still reckoning with that in like so many ways. Um, But specific to touch, that's, that's why we're here today is figuring yeah. out how, how to be close to each other, how to trust each other, how to engage with each other um, after such a huge event or many events. Yeah, I've been, I've been thinking a lot about like we as the new generation of yoga teachers, like what is this post 2020 yoga teacher, yoga professional like? What do mm. they do? What are we, what conversations are we having? And I feel like, like all things that are hard, 2020 and COVID gave us a lot of gifts and a lot of um, challenges. Mm. And so I want to talk about consent pre-COVID, like what we were talking about then, because pretty much it was like flip chips, right? Like it was glorified drink coasters that we were going to slide everybody in the classroom. I love that analogy. (laughs) (laughs) Drink coasters. They They are. They have some limitations. (laughs) They do. Um, and yet I applaud our efforts, right? So, I applaud our, our creativity and yeah. our efforts to try to figure out um, workable solutions. So what were you seeing then? Like, what do you think we were doing right? And what were we kind of missing in the conversation? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So again, our, our creativity, our innovation, right? Like we wanted to respond to the fact that harm was happening and that touch was being used in really domineering, abusive ways <laughs> in in certain cultures, certain lineages, maybe more so than others. But I don't think, again, I don't think any wellness or spiritual or ethical institution is like immune from harm unless they actually have a good understanding. And, and I'm a student of this, right? Like, so disclaimer, I've taught this many course many times, I'm on my soapbox about it and I will continue to be. Uh, And yet we're all figuring this out because we're human. And being human means that we've had our own histories, our own experiences. Um, Some of us have experienced specific traumas around touch or bodily consent, um, whether that's sexual assault, gynecological trauma, you know, whatever it might be. And so the fact that we're human is both like a blessing and advantage. We wanna figure it out, we wanna do better. We got creative and things came out of that, like asking um, new students when they walk in the door, if there's anything we should know about their history, asking a group of people um, in class to raise their hand if they want touch or if they don't want touch. the flip chips and different cards, visual aids at the top of the mat to try to, again, cue into um, whether or not touch is welcome for that student. And one of the good things that came from the flip chips, I think, was that it put the onus or the agency back in the student's hands. It gave them a tangible, visible way to signal whether they were a yes or a no. What I find challenging is that it tries to remove like these other external visual 
clues or signs or products that have been created for consent, it removes the human aspect, the relational skill set that is necessary to actually navigate what I call dynamic informed consent. So dynamic means it's ongoing, it's continuous, it's not a one and done. We can't assume that the yes at the beginning is a yes all the way through the class. Uh, we can't assume that a yes in one posture is going to be a yes in a very different posture, uh, right? So it's dynamic. It's got to be responsive and adaptive to what's happening in real time. And then the informed consent piece, right? Like the person needs to know <laughs> what you're proposing with some specificity before it happens, right? So coming up to someone, um, you know, coming to someone's mat in the middle of the class and saying, can I offer you a suggestion here? Or may I touch you in this pose? Doesn't tell them where you're going to touch them, how much pressure, what direction you're going to move them in, whether you're going to move them at all, or if it's just a placement of a hand for their awareness. There's just a lot of information that's lacking in some of the ways we've tried to navigate consent. Um, and like, again, my soapbox and hope is that we have more conversations, we have more trainings, we have more real time in the flesh experiences as yoga teachers, where we're working out the nonverbal aspects of consent and being able to track or attune to what's going on in our own system in real time, as well as what's the transmission between me and the student. So my, my approach is saying this has to be dynamic. It has to be informed. Ideally, it's enthusiastic as well, <laughs> right? right? It's like a totally like, on board, like, yes. yes, this is going to happen versus yes. like, a, yeah, do whatever you want with me. Yes. Or same uh, like, rules yeah, as sex, enthusiastic consent. <laughs> exactly. We're talking, we're talking in the same realm as sexual activity for sure. Um, P.S. No sex with your yoga students <laughs> ever doesn't need to be said, but we're going to say it. <laughs> if you are a yoga studio owner and you're not sure what to write in your manual about not having sex with your students, please send me a direct email. I will send you my manual. <laughs> the end. Simply <laughs> Yes. Sexual contact not allowed between teacher and student, right? That's that's a power dynamic, right? So yeah. talking about some of the limitations of these um, glorified coasters, as you say, or the flip chips and consent cards and things, there's a power dynamic, a, a differential between teacher and student just inherently, right? Like we yes. might be the most warm, caring proactive yoga educator ever. And yet when we're in that position of leadership, there's going to be a power differential that for many students will mean that they might be likely to override their instinctual desire or response. Well, I'm new to yoga. The teacher knows better yeah. or they mean, well, this might feel really good. I'll try it right. Without really having information or rapport or, all of the above, right? Um, so power differential or power dynamics as well as peer dynamics, right? If everyone else is raising their hand, is that person who wants to opt out really going to opt out or are they gonna just opt in because the culture around them is saying yes? 
So that's one, one shift that could be implemented right off the bat for teachers that are listening to shift from an opt-out culture well, to an opt-in culture. Go ahead. So, so I want to ask you this question because partially because I have a suspicion, I know what you're going to say and you're going to validate what I think. So (laughs) (laughs) here's the question, power dynamics, Mm -hmm. peer, peer, like we're in a public space. Yeah. Dynamic informed consent. Is there a situation in which a group in a group class, because you're describing group yoga, right? We're in group settings. versus what you and I do when we're yoga therapists one-on-one with folks. Mm -hmm. But most folks listening and teaching are in group settings. Is there a situation in a group setting where you think touch meets all the requirements that you've just set out? Sherry. It is very very (laughs) rare. It's very rare to be able to have the quality of experience, that living transmission that I was talking about between teacher and student, that it is a mutually beneficial experience. So it's not a correction or an adjustment or a doing to someone else, right? Like that's foundational in the way that I offer touch and what I teach in my course is that this is a mutual win-win we're going for. We're exploring and learning embodiment, kinesthetic skill, interoception together. It's a shared responsibility and shared experience. And so for all of the reasons, as you said, if we're talking group environments, whether it's a group of three or four people or a group of 40 people, uh, whether it's a yin class or a hot, sweaty core power class, right? Like in a group setting, we are limited in our ability to actually have the dialogue that's necessary and the time to slow down and track what's happening effectively for it to really be a learning experience. And that's what I'm going for, (laughs) right? Is a learning experience, right? That we we have a something comes of it that leaves both of us, you know, teacher and student somehow moved or, you know, touched, but moved in a particular way, or that that kinesthetic skill, the movement skill, or the quote unquote alignment that we were so obsessed with years ago in yoga, <laughs> right? Like, oh my God. Something Same. Yes. Yeah. Like something changes as a result of that transmission or that, um, shared experience. And so I believe touch can serve so many purposes. In my course, we talk about six distinct purposes of touch. Um, It can be praise, connection, support, providing stability, um, you know, muscle engagement. There's so many different reasons why we might use touch. And some of them can be very quick. So back when I was teaching actively weekly beginner class or flow class, um, there would be times where I would make eye contact with students, especially if there was something I saw them shift on their own that seemed constructive. I would come in proximity wise and like, hey, high five, like you just did that, right? Like that's a really sort of casual, colloquial kind of way of using touch that offers the student praise and affirmation. Like you did this on your own. 
I saw you make that adjustment. Well done, you know? So there, there are less formal ways of using touch that isn't like so layered with all this ethical and methodological framework. And in those cases, in a group setting, sure, I might use touch. But when it comes to actually exploring a somatic inquiry, a movement process, um, shifting how someone is living within a posture or being within a posture, that takes time, um, takes rapport, takes slowing down, which is really not that possible in a group setting especially if it's a yeah. fast-paced vinyasa class, which many teachers are teaching, right? People love so, it, they want it, but touch is limited in those contexts, in my opinion. I, I agree 100% with you. Um, as you know, I'm a touch-free studio in group classes. We don't, we don't do that here. When we were first having this conversation 2016, 2017, as a group, as like a profession, <laughs> I remember bringing in stones to the studio and to me I was telling people this consent is an action so if you take a stone you're saying yes to this it wasn't that you know like this is the action so that new people who didn't know what the game was would always not be taking a stone they would never have to worry about it and then mm -hmm. by the end of class I would explain it but here's what I found is that Every time somebody like I used to have students who would line the front of their mats with stones, they'd take seven of them be like, <laughs> I love it when you give me an adjustment. And then I would dig a little bit deeper, which is the, the conversation I want to have here. Let's dig a little bit deeper. I'd say, oh, my gosh, what do you love about having, a um, you know, an assist? And the answer nine times out of 10 was, well, I want to make sure I know how I'm doing it right. Hmm. And I was like, well, damn, what about my teaching made you feel like you were doing it wrong? Mm. And so I realized this, this sort of methodology, this reliance we have on assists, maybe is sending different messages than what we think is happening in a group dynamic, you know? Like, and so I'm curious your thoughts on that. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's a common question that we get as yoga teachers, am I doing this right? What should I be feeling in this pose? Yeah. Um, my verbal response back to that, while I've never had stones across the mat or, you know, use that <laughs> particular method, um, you know, my verbal response is, well, can you tell me what you are feeling? <laughs> right. So again, it's an internal inquiry and they're doing their best to a focus their attention on their body, in their body. So focusing the mind, which is again, like, you know, a big part of yoga. <laughs> so focused yeah. attention and then accurate embodied perception. Like, can they actually find or locate the sensation that they're feeling from that sort of nonverbal sensory accessing of sensation? Step two, and then step three, can they articulate that? Do they have words right. to describe what's going on in their body? And that, man, like that's what I've been teaching for 20 years, <laughs> right? Like there's a lot of other like tangents, right? But, but that like essence of embodiment or kinesthetic skill or what we call interoception um, over and over and over again, that's one of my primary goals in teaching movement or teaching yoga asana 
is that that person is getting more equipped and more attuned to their own experience. And then from that comes all the options, all the choices, all the curiosity to then move differently or change course when they feel like they need to. Um, so yeah, this, this obsession, I mean, I think it's very human and maybe very common anytime we do something new that we want to get it right. Right. And there might be higher allegiances in there. <clears throat> that term, that phrase, higher allegiances comes from one of my main teachers, Donna Fari. Um, so higher allegiances could be making sure they do it right in order to please the teacher, making sure they do it right so they can practice at home, making sure they do it right according to what the posture looks like, the aesthetic versus the felt experience of the asana. So a higher allegiance would be anything that that person, the student or practitioner of yoga would potentially say that higher allegiance, I might override my instincts. I might choose something that doesn't feel coherent, congruent with my lived experience because I have this allegiance outside myself on the teacher, on the lineage, on the aesthetics, on the wanting to be perfect, whatever it is. <clears throat> so yeah, there's a lot <laughs> that comes into play when you have, you know, someone in triangle pose, you're bringing that whole person into the pose and that comes with all their perceptions all their history all their preferences um yeah all of the above it's always the whole person i love how you put that that idea of higher allegiances because there are so <laughs> many factors at play for the humans in our room i mean i often see and i've talked about this before like i see like perfectionism sliding its way in there so like so clearly and i just every time i want to be like hey you're great you're mm -hmm. just great what how you came today is great hopefully mm -hmm. when you leave you'll be not only great but maybe a little bit more relaxed like mm -hmm. you're you're great you don't need to be more perfect for me and sometimes i feel like we inadvertent inadvertently are sending those messages and when we couple that message in class with the message on Instagram, with the message of like, you know, that person who in the world is trying to have sort of the perfect look or the perfect clothes or the perfect whatever. Like we're sliding right into that model of don't worry, I'll fix you. <laughs> yeah. When yoga is, you don't need to be fixed. You need to f uncover all the stuff that made you forget how perfect you already are. Mm -hmm. Yeah inherent innate wholeness goodness yeah in every one of us perfect as we are yeah yeah i mean that being said like there are some funky things that can happen in alignment or <laughs> it's true <laughs> you know, it's true practice or you know someone's holding their breath and they don't even know they are or you know whatever it is there there are yeah. ways that we can assist our students but i think that <clears throat> what we are I feel like what you and I are aligned in is this desire to create a, a new paradigm of why we use touch and when we use touch and how we use touch. And that it's not coming from, I will assist you because I know better, or let me adjust you because you can't do it on your own, or somehow what you're doing is faulty. It's mm -hmm. again, let's see what happens 
let's have an experience together. And then you tell me whether it was useful. And if yeah. there's any change, again, can you articulate what that change was? And is it reliable? Can you then find it on your own without relying on me as the external authority? Yes. Is there actual yes. taking place? That's again, my, my soapbox. Um, so I'm a little curious. I love all the methodology and ethics and like, we are, we are ranting and I love it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm a little curious too, about, um, just talking about touch, um, touch itself and how necessary yeah. it is. Uh, because again, I think, I think we're missing the mark, like majorly missing the mark. If we just say, let's prevent harm. So therefore we're never going to come into close contact or proximity or use touch again in our yoga spaces. Um, so, uh, I was, I was digging into some of my resources this morning and found this little nugget that I want to share two nuggets. Actually, um, one is that touch is our very first sense to develop. It is the mother of all other senses. So in utero, when we are a tiny little embryo, <laughs> just a collection <laughs> of cells, uh, when we're an inch from crown to rump, like a one inch human <laughs> in womb, <laughs> less than six weeks in utero, we respond to touch. So if that upper lip or nose is stroked a little bit, that baby knows how to respond. They'll turn away or they'll react to their sense of touch way before they can hear, way before they can see, taste, smell, all of the other senses. So touch comes first. And we know from mother-baby research or early developmental research that we need touch for so many developmental processes, our physical health, our physiological, neurological development, our emotional, psychological well-being. Um, that is our primary way of making sense about the world when we start to relate to um, our caregivers or our parents um, and gravity when we start to move on the floor and figure out our body. Touch is wired into all those developmental processes. Um, the other nugget that I just found so interesting, especially the more that I, I'm going to. Hmm. So the second nugget, um, that I love about our sense of touch, especially the more I geek out on the nervous system and regulation and polyvagal theory and all of that is entwined with this course on consent and touch that I teach. Um, so the other nugget is when we are embryologically developing Again, that collection of cells, there's these three parts, and you don't necessarily have to know the names and embryological theory behind this, but tiny geek out fun moment, the 
endoderm, mesoderm, and ectoderm are the three layers of that collection of cells as it's forming into an embryo, which will become one of us, a human. And our skin and our central nervous system both come from the ectoderm, that outermost third layer of cells or tissue. So we could think about that like spidey sense uh, you know, like our, our sensations, our intuition, like butterflies in our belly, um, the hairs on the back of our neck, the way that we register our environment and our sense of okayness or safety through our skin. It's like we're wearing our nervous system on the outside, right? They've come from developmentally the same cells, the same tissue. So whether we think of the skin, like an outside the body nervous system that's like picking up on our radar, like whether we feel okay with this person or with what's happening, being touched in this way in a class um, by our yoga teacher or not. It's just so fascinating that we're so intertwined from like what we think of as very um, internal hidden aspects of our physiology but our skin is that like one in the same, like our skin suit is that like external outer layer of registering safety or threat. So the way that we're being touched, um, the way that we are invited into touch, um, whether someone's coming from the front of our mat where we can see them coming, or we're in a posture like child's pose or down dog, or they come from behind and we don't see them coming, and then it's a surprise, right? Like all those little subtle aspects, we likely, if we're really attuned to our intero and exteroception our, or what's called neuroception from the nervous system perspective, right? Like that spidey sense radar that our body picks up on subconsciously before we've actually given verbal consent or even been touched, right? Like all those precursor, more subtle whispers in our body that are showing us our instincts. Sometimes it's showing us our patterns, <laughs> right? So if we've had trauma or some kind of specific history around touch or proximity, we might also just be seeing residue from that, right? The patterns or conditioning or result of those past experiences, which can be completed, resolved, healed in time, in relationship with practice. Um, but again, in that group setting, we've got some pretty, pretty hard stops or limits on the effect yeah. of this consent process and touch. Um, and so we all need it. We all benefit from it. If we didn't get it developmentally in the womb and in those first handful of years of life, um, then again, we may have more to unpack and integrate and understand about ourselves as adults as to why, why we feel the way we do, how we relate to others, um, whether we're open to affection and touch or not. Um, so yeah, I really feel that touch is needed. It is beautiful. It is incredible. And in terms of learning movement, right? Like if we're talking yoga asana <clears throat> or pranayama, breath work, meditation, mudra, whatever, we're learning how to do stuff with our physical body <laughs> a lot of the time in how yoga is presented in our culture. So if we're trying to learn physicality or kinesthetic skill, touch is potentially the best way or the quickest way 
for us to have a somatic experience, a direct transmission of sensation. Touch is great at that, uh, but it needs to be in the right environments, the right context, um, and with the right approach and skill set. <laughs> That's like, yeah. like my other soapbox is like we're laying all the groundwork today around consent and things that we need to consider as teachers, as yoga therapists, as yoga studio owners, as festival and conference organizers, you know, all of yeah. these are considerations we need to start talking more about. Beyond that, though, we also need like actual hands-on skill set. We need training and proficiency in our ability to observe and attune and in our literal use of touch, where we place our hands, how much pressure we use, what direction or spatial intention we use, um, <clears throat> even just having a clear goal that is shared with the student, that both people are on board with what's going to happen and why. And we know sort of the, the trajectory of what we're aiming for <laughs> um, yeah. in terms of learning or outcome. I think that you've really brought up a great point. So when I trained in the very, very early 2000s, and I was an Iyengar trained teacher, right? So Iyengar is a heavy assist method. We're yeah. all up in people's businesses. Um, you were just thrown out there. Like I remember being in teacher training and like, two days in they were like okay so you're gonna adjust somebody in trikonasana and i was just like are you sure <laughs> like, <laughs> like me <laughs> right and and it seems like like i like this approach right it doesn't have to go away completely but there needs to be training that in my mind happens after you've already done some teaching Yes, because that's the thing is that for the first five to seven years of me adjusting or assisting people physically as a teacher, I had no freaking clue why I was doing the reason why was because my teacher told me to do it. Mm -hmm. And I did not have the language or the skill set to even explain to somebody what the point was other than, oh, your hip isn't stacked prettily on top of the other hip and your shoulders should look more like the picture in the book. Like, <laughs> yeah, and and that feels like higher allegiances, higher allegiances, right. alert, alert. <laughs> right. That feels like training that happens on an intermediate or advanced skill set level. Certainly not at the beginning. And I don't know how you feel, but I'd be curious. Yeah. Well, and it it's been interesting, um, you know, to reflect on how how I've come to be in the roles that I've been in, you know, specifically with this most recent seven years um, as a co-director lead faculty of an accredited IAYT program, you know, like that's like the top certification for yoga professionals. Um, so when I, when I look at like sort of where my place is or what, what feels like more, more so my Dharma, my purpose, my, sort of positioning in like this broader world of like, what is yoga and how do we teach it? Um, I've actually never taught in a 200 hour program. <laughs> um, I've, I've always taught 500 hours or CIYT level. Um, and I, I very much believe that 
what we all know that the market is saturated, right? Like there's, there's a lot of people trained at that entry level 200 hour certificate. Um, and so I've, I've really landed on where my joy is and where my skill set maybe is best served, although I'm not opposed to teaching in 200 hour programs. Um, it feels like my skill set, passion, interest, purpose is best served, not in churning out more yoga teachers. My interest is let's get better yoga teachers. Let's yeah. improve our professionalism. Let's advance our skill set. Let's have more of these nuanced conversations that, hey, if we want to change culture, consent needs to be taught day one, right? And even before someone signs up for a 200-hour entry-level training, it needs to be, I think, talked about in every studio culture, every movement culture, you know, somatics, movement, CrossFit, personal training, you know, any of these movement modalities or disciplines that potentially come into proximity and touch, we need to be talking about consent and all of the different advantages and disadvantages that, you know, we're starting to talk about here. So yes, culture change needs to happen at every level and from day one, but I agree that with the current yoga Alliance standards as they are and have been, we're, we're not really going to see that shift like systemically just yet. I don't think, um, as much as I would like it to right? like, I would like higher standards for anatomy. I would like higher standards for informed consent and ethics. Um, I'd like hands-on training to be included, um, in the competencies for yoga teachers. But again, does that land in a 200 hour or more so in, 300, 500, 850,000 hour programs yeah. where people, like you said, have already established themselves in their own embodied self, not for the goal of perfection, right? But that we've practiced enough, we've experimented enough in our, our own body, and then also had some teaching chops, <laughs> To then be able to start to use touch more effectively because we've been around the block a handful of times or, you know, months or years worth of teaching experience to then be able to, um, yeah, be more effective and skillful in how we're approaching yeah. students, how we're dialoguing with them um, and the hands-on touch aspect. So I think that one of the things I like about this is this idea that consent is a different conversation than hands-on touch because consent to me covers so many things, but it's all been messy and stirred in together, right? Like when we talk about consent, we were only talking about assists. And you and I talked yesterday before we recorded this. And my example is always like, I also didn't consent to your lecture on the environment. Like I know that recycling is good. Like, like you could consent in words, consent in all these other aspects of what happens in our spaces. That's a different conversation and skill set than coming into hands on assists. So that's a whole other thing. That is, like you said, landing in my mind in like a 300, 500, 850 sort of training level. Like until you're there, keep your hands to yourself, maybe. Yeah, yeah I, I agree with that. I think that there's enough to figure out as a newbie teacher, right? As a green teacher yeah. teaching your first class, first dozens of classes, there's plenty to 
integrate and embody in terms of how you show up, how you prepare yourself before you walk in the door, um, as well as then how you present yourself in real time, um, your use of language and cues. Um, and that's that's a segment of my course. Thank you for reminding me from yesterday <laughs> that we <laughs> talked about is the non-touch toolkit. So yeah. what else can we do besides just putting our hands on someone? And there's typically, you know, several steps before I would use touch um, where I'm actively observing and tracking someone. Um, you know, in the instance of assisting Donna Fari, where there's 50, 60, 70 people in the room. Um, I'm on the periphery those first few days of a five, five or seven day intensive. And it's not until I see a pattern that's clear that then I see, are they aware of that pattern? Is it conscious or unconscious? If they're actively working on it on their own, I let, I let them be right. Like they are actively learning and experimenting to figure it out themselves. And that's gold. That's like so valuable to not intervene. But when I see something that is a pattern that feels unconscious, that may have some kind of risk that's posed to that student, then I'll go ahead and intervene. But it's usually dialogue first, right? It's dialogue and verbal first. Maybe it's a suggestion or the use of a prop. I again, step back and see, are they experimenting actively and working this out on their own? Um, and again, like, okay, maybe if I intervene again, it's, it's because they do actually quote unquote need <laughs> potentially support or touch um, or some more active engagement with an experienced teacher. And that's okay, right? That's our job. I love teaching. And in that environment, um, and what I've seen demonstrated by Donna over the years is a very active use of touch in many instance, instances. Um, of course, consent is baked into that as well, but much more hands-on um, than some of my other trainings where it was pretty hands-off. Like you said, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, especially if they're beginners, yeah. let them work it out. Let them believe they're doing well. Let them trust the benefits that they walk out of class with, and then they'll come back, <laughs> right? Yeah. And when they come back, as we know, when we practice consistently over time, like the yoga sutras say, things happen, <laughs> right? Like whether we intervene and touch them or not, like if they're actively engaged in their practice and returning to class, we can trust that there's something good that can come from that without us actively intervening to touch. Um, so yeah, I've, I've been in both camps where it's like, you know, very hands-off or very hands-on. And I appreciate that because it's helped me build discernment and see some of the different yeah. nuances in different environments. Um, yeah. So I, all the way back, circling back to your point, yes, consent, ethics, methodology, that's like ground zero of like shifting the culture around this. Um, but we also need the practical training to put yeah. our hands on people. And that also is lacking. It's very, very much missing in the way that yoga teachers are, are standardized in their training. Yes. So, so much. So, I mean, I almost feel that in, and again, we're talking two decades ago when, you know, we were coming up and getting trained that for me, 
because touch was considered to be assumed, like you, you were in a class and you assumed touch was happening. Mm -hmm. um, for me, it became so, so I actually stopped manually assisting people well before the conversation of flip chips and consent came out because I wanted to be a better teacher. I wanted to get better at my job. And, mm -hmm. and so I stopped and I went, oh, what do I rely on that makes me lazy? That's making me not as engaged and present with my students. Mm -hmm. And the very first thing that came up was manual assists. Like if I couldn't find the words, I'd just move you, which I think is typically <laughs> the case, <Yeah>. right? <laughs> like, like, oh, so, you know, we're trying to say the thing and we're looking at the student and we're going, oh, I want them to do the thing. And if yeah. you're not good with the verbal cueing, you're just like, oh, well, here, let me help you. Eh. <laughs> you know, like push them around. Right. And I was like, oh, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to get better at this skill set. So I stopped touching people. My students hated yes. it. Hated it. And I got so much pushback for this. And I was like, this will make me better in the end. Stick with me, y'all. And they did. Thank goodness. Good for you. Good for you. <laughs> and good for your students, right? Of like, okay, I'm actively experimenting as a teacher. Hi, I'm human. I'm learning yeah. with you. Yep. Um, and again, that's a win-win. And if, if people departed in that moment, right? Bless them. Wish you well. Find, find, yes. find a teacher that's going to fit the needs in the moment for what you desire. Um, and yeah, good, good on your students that stuck with you through that kind of trial and error of figuring out, like, how do I articulate this? Where's my language? How do I source that language from my own sensory experience on the mat? So then it's clear. Yeah. Yeah. And that again, takes a long time, a really long it, time to hone for, for most teachers. I think it also takes us as people who've been in this industry talking and having these conversations we need to make sure we're having them with newer teachers that are coming up like it's okay to unpack and discover who you are as a teacher including being like 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 i'm i'm generally somebody who's probably less of the mainstream like that's how i started with yoga no so, so i know right <laughs> <laughs> so being unpopular and making that sort of not liked choice feels yeah. normal for me. Like I'm, I'm going to crave that a little bit, like, yeah. but not everybody is like that. And the, knowing that it's worth unpacking who you are as a teacher to get better at the job, to get better at the skill set, I think is good. It's okay to be like, why do I touch people? Is yeah. it just because my teacher told me to? Hmm. Yeah. For me, I, it was. I, right. I, I appreciate your honesty. Totally appreciate your honesty in that. Um, hmm. Yeah, I'm just I'm just reflecting back on um, how I got started in yoga, and I I don't need to go on the whole whole you know step by step chronological story <laughs> of it. But I've always um, you know now having had the experiences I've had this past year with different familial ruptures and trauma and different revelations kind of playing out in my own system, um, it makes a little bit more sense. But back when I started yoga, I worked privately with a local teacher who I respected very much. Um, she recommended I work with Donna and I, I really never looked back. I never looked for other possibilities or local trainings or studio-based, studio culture-based trainings. 
um, which I think is so pervasive and common now, like every studio has a program almost because it's a revenue producing product or service. Um, so I don't know. I've just, I've always had like a pretty high BS meter <laughs> for yeah. like guru lineage or, or hierarchical culture. Um, and that's one of the things I've appreciated with um, Donna's history with yoga journal and, and calling out some of these ethical concerns, you know, decades ago when she was a younger teacher and now yeah. she's a teacher and, and we're still unfortunately having some of those same conversations and it's much more visible perhaps with social media and the way that, you know, we use the internet now, like we know everything that happens in the world somewhat yes. instantaneously um, and everyone has a platform. And so there's advantages and disadvantages of that. But if it is finally revealing long-standing patterns of dominance and harm, I'm okay with that as uncomfortable as it is. We need to reckon with that. We need to see it. Um, and then we need to do better, <laughs> right? Yeah. And this, this is one, one of the ways that, that I'm committed to the work that we do up-leveling the quality of the experience, the quality of the exchange, and that everybody gets to be transformed and nurtured and, and nourished by their practice, um, instead of it being just another rinse, repeat of the dominant culture yes. that we're, you know, attempting to change pretty dramatically <laughs> in many ways. Um, yeah. Okay. So for our final point, what is step one for those who are listening out there? What is your, where, where do we start in sort of unraveling or unpacking is the common term, this idea of what consent is for you as a teacher? Let's just go solo and then ignore the studio owners, send them to me, we'll talk. <laughs> <laughs> so your, your question is, what is step one for yeah. the individual yoga teacher? Yeah, to unpack consent in your classes. Mm -hmm. um, I, I would even start before in your classes and come back to that personal mission of agency, interoception, embodied instincts, and the capacity to respond, right? So I think you and I, for whatever reason, have that rebellious streak where we want to <laughs> ask questions, we want to consider other viewpoints and kind of challenge or push back sometimes against what we see happening. Um, and I think because we want to belong, we want to fit in, we want to feel good, you know, it can be really easy to go along with what's offered or go along with what's dominant. <clears throat> and so as we were talking yesterday, you know, those of us that teach, maybe those of us, especially that are um, women, socialized as women, um, I have two young daughters and we just, I just had a conversation snuggling on the couch this morning um, with Fern. She's my six-year-old um, about, you know, basically these details around like, does this feel right in your body or what did you feel in your body? And what do you want to do differently next time? Or, or how, how did that make you feel? How did you respond? Right. So personal embodiment is so huge. 
And again, we don't have to be perfectly balanced, perfectly regulated, never off kilter, right? We're, we're going to fluctuate because we're human. We are property, but our personal practice is so tremendously important. And so finding ways to resource and understand and regulate ourselves as reliably as possible before we go teach, especially before we touch people. So yeah. personal practice, amen, hallelujah, <laughs> ongoing forever <laughs> yes. and ever until we die. Yes. Um, and then in the classroom, I, again, in general for group settings, I would strongly encourage folks to consider some of the limits on their ability to truly get informed consent in a group setting and maybe set some boundaries within themselves about what, what they will engage with, how they'll engage in a group setting. Um, and then if they teach privately, right, that's like a different, different container. That's a different context yes. um, where more can play out in terms of touch. Um, yeah. Yeah. Maybe my last, last one, um, in the teaching context would be like the high five reference earlier. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. That was really good. Just come from that true human connection and belongingness or wholeness that we talked about, like that is yoga. And if you're going to use touch in a group setting, let it come from love, let it come from praise, let it come from playfulness. And those ways of engaging with students are highly co-regulating, <laughs> right? Like they're massively helpful <laughs> yes. for our nervous system, our sense of safety and belonging. It's only going to build rapport with your community that then if there's, you know, some kind of road in to proximity or touch, like you've got a relationship versus someone who just walked in the door for the first class, or maybe they've been in your class for six months, but they've kept pretty anonymous in the back corner to themselves. They haven't chosen to engage with you much, right? So like understanding all those other subtle dynamics of the relationship, build rapport first, use touch in more like socially acceptable, more widely acceptable, casual person-to-person -person ways to build praise, belonging, connection, maybe first, um, and drop the paradigm of I'll do this for you, or I'll do this to you. Just like, yeah. stop. <laughs> stop, <laughs> stop it. leave it at the door. Like that, that's not what I want to see continue in yoga spaces. Yeah. You just made me think of, and, and I'm going to have you tell everybody how to find you in a minute, but you did make me think of this idea that imagine being in a grocery store and putting your hands on people the way that we do in a yoga class. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, could you imagine just going up to somebody by the bananas being like, hold up, I'm going to put my foot on your thigh. It's fine. I'm just trying to increase the angle between your <laughs> hip. <laughs> Like for one week, only touch people in ways that you could touch them at the grocery store without being weird. <laughs> what if that happens? <laughs> That's kind of a fun experiment. I'm thinking now if I've had any like random, random episodes of touch in a grocery store. <laughs> I totally have. I have high five people, five people in a grocery store for yeah. sure. High fives <laughs> or like maybe a touch on the shoulder, like, oh, excuse me, I'm going to reach around you for this produce or whatever, you know, moments right. like that, maybe. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
So tell everybody where to find you. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to play with this at the grocery store and just see what, what comes of it. The only example that came to me is when I'm pregnant, when I've been pregnant, right? Like this oh. weird cultural assumption that you can like touch pregnant ladies' bodies. Stop so it. So weird. Okay. Don't do it. So, <laughs> don't do it. Um, where people can find me is very soon on a brand new website. Woo! Woo! Coming. It's coming finally. Um, so my website is sherrydostel.com. My email is dostelsherry at gmail. Um, I'm on Instagram way more than Facebook. So if you Facebook message me, it might sit there for months. Uh, reach out by email or Instagram instead. Um, and the best way to stay in touch, um, especially with the soon to be APD course, approved professional development course. So consent, touch, ethics is going to be submitted this week um, as an IAYT APD course. Um, so to stay in touch for that, the best way would be to join my email list. So that way you're getting current updates on events and trainings and offerings. Thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. As always, you're the yeah. best. You're the best. Thank you for having <laughs> me back. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Sherry, for this conversation. I love talking with you so much honestly, just in general. And I learned so much from us talking about consent and touch on the podcast. Here are my key takeaways. Consent is dynamic, ongoing, and informed. That means that it's not the same thing every time for every person. And it is something that can change and should be rechecked over and over again, even within the same class. And that both the teacher and the student need to know exactly what is being consented to every single time. Next, don't have sex with your students. This shouldn't need to be said, but I'm going to reiterate it because it is an important point. Next, power dynamics in the yoga studio room matter. The power dynamic of teacher and student and students with each other all have an impact on how people answer when we ask for consent. It is okay to unpack and discover your own voice as a teacher in order to be better at the job. Ask yourself, why you do what you do in class, why you say the words you say, and does it serve you and your students, or are you doing it just because you were told to do it by somebody else? The subject of consent needs to be moved into the realm of our words, too. Do your students also consent to being lectured about whatever social justice or environmental cause you are passionate about at the moment? While those things are important, especially to us as yoga practitioners, but consider how and why we say what we say in a class. And if that is really what your students signed up for when they came into the room. And finally, make sure that you are regulated before you come to class and especially before you touch people. Thank you so much for listening today. I am so grateful that you are here. And as always, thank you to Sunlight Streams, our podcast sponsor. And they are here to remind you to care for yourself with the same degree that you are caring for everyone else. I will catch you around the water cooler next time. <laughs>